Today's text is Acts 2, 41 through 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a lot of important questions. Maybe next week we can all move forward. Let's just get it on the table. So there's a lot of important questions you all have, I'm sure, in life that you're faced with. I mean, think about it. Where am I going to go to school? And where am I going to study? And who will I marry? And where will I live? There's a lot of key questions that you are faced with that you have to consider. But have you considered this question? What church will I make my home? Have you ever considered that to be an important question? Uh, What church will I make my home? In other words, it is important what church you make your home, right? If the church is to be the incubator of faith, if the church is to be that, that group of people uh, that you walk this life with, preparing you to see God, wouldn't it be an important question to make sure that, yes, I'm with the right church? It's a biblical church. It's a, a spirit-led church. You know, where we are in this series in Acts, if you think about it, was chapter 1, if you remember, Uh, Jesus called his followers uh, to be witnesses, that is to testify to the truth of Christ. That's what they were called to do. And and then Jesus had said, you wait here until you receive power, because you can't do a witness without the Spirit of God. And so so the next sermon was on the Spirit of God coming in chapter 2. So now you have the call to be a witness, and you have the Spirit now coming. And then the very next sermon is, of course, Peter, a witness, filled with the Spirit, beginning to preach. And he preaches, and you see that 3,000 were convicted and converted. Uh, This group now, notice what it says in 41, those who accepted his message were baptized or added to their number that day. That day. So there's 120 disciples in Jerusalem. He he preaches, and then 3,000, boom, on that day. This is the newly constituted community of Christ. It's the church. Uh, it was made up of people who, as you, as you heard me read, they accepted his message. The message he had was this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth. He's both the Christ, he's a savior. He saves us from sins and alienation from God. And yet he's also the Lord. He's the sovereign king. So he's a savior and a sovereign. And those who have faith in him are evidenced by their conviction of sin. Remember last week they were cut to the heart? And then they were surrendered. They said, what do we do? There was no pushback on Peter's preaching. Uh, And and then they repented of their sins. And they were baptized to show that, yes, they've died to their old way of life. Now they're living to the new way of life. And they joined the church. This is a group of people who were drawn out of darkness into light. I mean, think about the nature of these people. Uh, They were lost, but now they're found. Uh, They were dead, now they're alive. Uh, They had no hope, but now they have eternal life. They were alienated from God, but now they're reconciled. Uh, They were orphaned, but now they're children of God. It's a new community. 
It's a new community because they relate to God differently now. And we are to relate to one another differently. And we relate to the world. And so here we have in Luke 2, it's kind of a snapshot. You know, Luke is kind of giving us a picture of what the church in its infancy looked like. And, and so what I want to do is I want to look at these four characteristics of what the early church, the spirit-led church, I would say, looks like four of them. And then we're going to look at verse 47. And when you put these ingredients in the mix, here's what you're going to have. This is going to be the result. And we'll see that in verse 47. So look with me through these first four aspects of a spirit-led church. First you see in 42, he says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So God, in Genesis, by his word, he gave life to creation. Creation was formed. So now by his word, through the preaching of Peter and the witnesses, he forms his church. So you have 3,000 new students in the school of Christ. And they don't really know Christ. And so you see their first step is, I want to be devoted to learning about the one who has come to save me. Uh, the word devoted, by the way, it means it's a persistent, it, it's a committed, it, it's used for a soldier and his attitude towards his superior officer. It, it isn't kind of, if it works for me, I'll get on it. it it's a commitment and that's what these people, they're committed to learning. Now, they're committed not to the apostles per se, but to the apostles' teaching. So you notice that they're not going after the mystical experiences. They aren't going after signs and wonders. Hey, what flash in the pan can you show me? They weren't looking to themselves, but they were listening and devoted to learning about the teaching of the apostles, which was the words and the acts of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, how Jesus was the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament and all the promises of God. That's what they were devoted to. In fact, the early church was that way. The early church was known as a very text-centered group. In other words, they studied books. Now, uh, as a staff, we read a few months back, Christianity at the Crossroads. It's a it's a book of the early church in the second century. And, uh, you know, it was an important time. The apostles and all their followers had died, and this is the baton being handed off to the next, the next wave of Christians. This is what you drop the baton, you lose the race. And so really the whole, it was the hinge of keeping the church secure. And here's what one author wrote about it. One of the most notable features of early Christianity is that it was a religion concerned with books. In other words, books mattered. What books? The Old Testament, and of course, in the second century, the New Testament. But we're to be a community of learners. To learn about Christ is the fuel for prayer. It's the fuel for greater joy. To learn about Christ, it's the fuel for happiness in the midst of conflict. So would you consider yourselves devoted to learning? You know, it's not innate to us. It's not intrinsic to us. It's not something you're just born with, this understanding of Christ and what he's done. Now, thankfully, we have the New Testament, and the New Testament is an accurate rendering and record of all that Jesus said and did. Not everything, but what he did is, is recorded there that is that is instruct, instructional for us to find and to know and to love them. Uh, so, so would you say that you're devoted to learning? 
In other words, when you, have you heard a message, and it doesn't have to be just from this pulpit, but perhaps in a Sunday school, where you were convicted of sin and you wanted to repent? Have, have you, of late, do you come in and do you humble yourself under the word? Are you anxious to believe what is explained to you? Are you devoted to learning? You know, we live in this age where, you know, we have a devotional Bible for, I think, every walk of life. You can be an oil driller in Texas, and there's a devotional Bible for you. We've got Bibles all over the place, and we have all kinds of literature about Bibles, and yet our biblical illiteracy is very, very high. Why is that? Are we not devoted to learning? I don't want us to be guilty of the charge that the writer of Hebrews gave. When he said these words, he says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Is that us? Is that you? Are you devoted to learning? You know, to be devoted to learning does require that, that adverb, devoted. You know, you have to be committed to it. You know, that, that persistence. It's not a spectator sport, learning. Uh, you can't learn. If, you're, if your wife reads the Bible, you won't get it from her reading the Bible. It's, it's not by proxy. You have to engage in reading. This is not easy. Uh, God doesn't just put the gold of his word on the surface of the soil. You know, I was reading Psalm 48 on Thursday morning, and uh, I read it. And I've read the Bible a couple times, and I read it, and I didn't know what I just read. So I, I read it again, and I'm starting to get a little bit. I read it again. It's 14 verses. I think I had to read it probably four or five times before the sweetness of it began to come out. And, and it was sweet. I was able to encourage two or three other people with just some of the observations I made. But it took time. And it was not easy. It was a labor. You had to be devoted to do it. Sometimes I just keep reading on because I'm looking for more quantity. That's not the thing to do. So are you devoted to learning? You know, I, I, I grieve for these people when they don't have their Bibles, how they hunger for the Word of God. Here, we have plenty. In fact, maybe you know the name Richard Wormbrand. He was a pastor in Romania, 50s and 60s and 70s. And he suffered much persecution for being a Christian under Ceausescu. That was the kind of, a, he was a ruthless dictator in Romania during that time frame. And he was jailed for, I think, 17 years. His wife, Sabina, was jailed for three years. And here's what she wrote about her time in prison regarding the scriptures. She said, we had no Bible. We hungered for it more than bread. How I wished I had learned more of it by heart. But we repeated daily those passages we knew, we learn what newcomers brought and taught them what we knew. So an unwritten Bible circulated through all of Romania's prisons. We want to be a people of the book. We want to be devoted to learning. Are you devoted? What distracts you? It, I, I grant you it is a difficult thing to do. When the paper is there, the iPhone is there, much easier things to read. But to be devoted to learning is a mark of the Spirit-filled church. It's where our joy, our satisfaction, really, yeah, it sustains us in this life. The Christian life is not an easy road. If it was, more people would be doing it actively. The Word of God is essential 
the Spirit, opening our eyes to the truth of God that we may live in a way that honors Him. Okay, the second mark of the Spirit-filled church is that they fellowship together. They loved one another. Look back at 42, because in 42 he kind of gives a summary of what he explains in the following verses. He says, and they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, what is fellowship? Fellowship is really a misunderstood word. We think of it as, well, they're cordial or they're courteous or they're kind. It's kind of just some conversation we have with some friends. Uh, The word fellowship actually means to share with, to participate with. To be devoted to fellowship means that I'm willing to consider what I can give rather than than simply what I get. Now, I think when you're fellowshipping with people, you do receive. But the mindset is, what can I give? It may be time, it may be money, it may be patience, it may be, it may be spiritual admonishment, it may be emotional support. Uh, the idea is, I'm giving to another that which I have. Uh, really, it's just practicing the one another. You know, throughout the New Testament, you see this idea of love one another, pray for one another, honor one another teach one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another. You have probably 20, 22 one another's. And what they teach us is that the Christian faith is about one another. You cannot be a solitary Christian. How would you practice the one another's? You need another. You know? And so the nature of the Christian fellowship, the spirit-led Christian fellowship, is this can never be a preaching center or a teaching center. It's cultivating a love a desire, a passion for one another. You, you kind of see one example of what fellowship looks like in verses uh, 44 and 45. He says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So we see that fellowship looks like the giving or the sharing of our material blessings with others or we're participating in their perhaps poverty or struggle with what we have. Now, I want to tell you that when you just read this, a lot of people go to, does this mean we're supposed to be socialists? I mean, just the equalizing of all property and selling of all things? I don't think it says that at all. A couple of reasons. Uh, The tense itself means that they were giving. Everybody didn't give all at once. In other words, it's like, the whole church didn't sell everybody, everything they had, put it in a big pool, and then spread it out among everybody. What would that leave everybody as? Now they're needing help. No, 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 that's not it. The idea is that they would sell their possessions as people had need. It was a sporadic, it was a periodic, but a continual. In fact, you see that it's not speaking to socialism because where did they break bread? In their homes. There was still personal property. There's still private ownership. Other people want to say, well, isn't giving supposed to be voluntary? Well, the passage is not, descri- it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It describes a situation. It doesn't prescribe your behavior. But before you feel like you just got a loophole from this text, let me remind you that God's community values people more than things. That what you have in the gospel is of far more value and import that it frees you to give of the things that you have to those that need. Now, if you say, well, I can't, I can't you know, feed the whole world, nobody's asking you to. They're just simply asking you to share with those with whom you know or the people around you. 
that are struggling. But this is one picture because you know, we, we tend to think, you know, well, it's mine and I worked for it. And we forget that God gives to us wealth. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 7. What do you have that you haven't received? And why would you cling to it as if you earned it yourself? You know, it's kind of a cute story told by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a British pastor in the, in the uh, mid-20th mid century. And he ran into a farmer who had a prized cow. And this prized cow had two calves, twin calves. And he came in his house and he was so excited. He said to his wife, he says, God has blessed us. We have this prize, two calves we have. And in his enthusiasm, he says, we're going we're gonna to give one to the Lord and then we'll keep one. And she goes, well, which one are you going to give to the Lord? He says, well, we don't need to worry about that right now, but we're going to give one to the Lord and then we'll keep one or keep the proceeds from selling it. So a couple months go by and he's been all excited, right? He comes in the next morning. He's kind of downcast, kind of saddened. And his wife says, what's, what's the matter? And he goes, well, I'm very sad. The Lord's calf just died. You know, <laughs> We, we, we tend to be very generous at the beginning, but when it comes down to us, we begin to cling and hold on. And, and yet God has given us this for other people. But it's not just the physical thing. Sometimes that's easier. I think the text, when they were devoted to fellowship, they were devoted to spiritual encouragement one to the other. In other words, to have fellowship with each other, a spirit-led church, that we are to seek the spiritual good of another person. That, that we are to actively promote faith. How? I, praying for them, engaging them, asking them, how is your walk of faith going? Where are you struggling? How can I pray for you? You know, I'm actively engaging in your life to help promote a godliness or perhaps even admonishment where there is a word that has to be given. It may be a hard word, but it's a word of correction so that you do not go off the path far. You know, this is what the writer of Hebrews, you know, Hebrews is a book, it's really a sermon, it's a sermon on trying to get the church to persevere. And in this sermon he said this, he said, let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. In other words, he tells us that you and I are to consider, you know, just like Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field, how they neither toil nor spend. He says, consider how to stir up one another. We need to think about how, we can aid other people in their walk of faith. That means you sitting down this afternoon. You put down your iPhone, you turn off the TV, and you think, how can I help so-and-so grow in their faith? What can I do? What gifts do I have? What position in their life do I hold that I can actually move to them and foster, encourage a greater love for God? Maybe it's talking, maybe it's listening, maybe it's praying. I don't know who the person might be, but that you're considering it. Now notice what he says in this verse. He says, consider how you ought to love one, or um, how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. He says this, very next line, don't forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, you need to be together to be able to do this. You need to be, if you don't post maybe once a month, twice a month, you don't have the relationships with people to actually encourage them in the faith. So let me ask you, in the last month, who have you encouraged in the faith? Who have you spoke to about the Christian, their walk of faith with God? Or who has encouraged you? 
Or when was the last time someone corrected you, perhaps? They lovingly, maybe they didn't do it perfectly, but, but they kind of just tried to encourage you in a better way. And how did you respond? Did you get angry? Did your back stiffen up? Did you consider maybe that they were just trying to love you? Now, th- this is the kind of dialogue that when it says they were devoted to fellowship, the Spirit of God, if it's filling the believers of a church, we will give each other avenues of communication into one another's lives to develop a Christ-likeness. Now, I, I know a lot of us get skittish on this. A lot of us say, you know, this is just too messy. I don't want to get in the lives of other people. It's just it's too complicated and it's too messy. You know, oftentimes we like the idea of community, but we don't like it in actuality because you get into it. You're not so sure you enjoy it anymore. We kind of have, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was this Lutheran pastor in the Second World War. You know, he, it's a dream. It's a wish. You know, I, I wish community were that way, but it's really not. And so you kind of back away from people and you, you don't end up being devoted to fellowship. Here's what he said. He said, every human wish dream that is injected into Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. And it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. In other words, if you think community's got to be this way, like a perfect little Garden of Eden situation, you're actually going to ruin the community you're trying to enjoy. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community becomes a destroyer of it, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. In other words, what he's saying is this kind of devoted to fellowship is difficult. Why? Because we're sinners. We're sinners being changed. We're oddballs. We're quirky. We have different styles. We drive each other mad sometimes. Sometimes our behavior really grates on one another. And that prevents us from enjoying and serving one another as he calls us to. You know, just, just remember, you know, I always love those care groups that have, you know, a broad demographic, right? There's a couple singles, there's some marrieds, there's some 40s, there's some 20s, there's maybe a, a, a 60. You know, those groups, they're kind of different, they're kind of, they may have some quirky personalities, the fact that they get together seeking one another, that is a compelling community to me because there's nothing in them other than the gospel that's binding them together. For me to get together with a bunch of people my age, my background, my tastes, my likes, my dislikes, my history, that's easy. Anybody can do that. I mean, you don't have to be any sort of spirit-filled Christian to do that. People do that all the time out there. A compelling community is a community built around the gospel when the differences are so obvious, but that's a challenge. I would say this, others have the excuse, well, I can't do this fellowship because it's just too costly. It's too costly. If you value a care group experience based upon what you get, you will surely be disappointed. There are times in life where you may be the one just giving. You just have to give. They may be in a position of needing to receive. And, and let me warn you, it can be flipped. There's times then that you will need their help. It, it's a both and. Fellowship is a given. Some of you may say, well, I can't do the fellowship because my past is so dark. My sins are so... If I told this group what I've just done in the last five years of my life, nobody would be on their chairs. I, 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 can't, I can't go that direction. Let me tell you, uh, if that happens, uh, it would be sad, but recoverable. 
We are sinners, every single one of us. And the ability to be transparent about the nature of our brokenness in its appropriate context and its appropriate disclosure is a God-centered thing. It's a spirit-led thing. The church is to be a refuge where sinners are actually welcome. Sinners who are repenting and seeking God's grace to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. If we say, I can't believe that person did that, I'd say, I don't know why you can't. You could. We could all do those things. There isn't one sin that I couldn't fall into if given the opportunity, if given the temptation, but by God's grace. So, so we don't want to ever shy away from community because we write ourselves off as too great of a sinner. Well, they look too good. Everybody, you all look great. I'll tell you that right now. But we all have basements. We all have histories. We all have struggles, every one of us. That's, what, that's, that's one unifying. That's why we all need the gospel, frankly. And, and then the last one would be, a lot of people shy away from this fellowship because they just say, it's too demanding. It, it's too bu- I'm too busy. I have too many things going on. I, I don't want to be bound to go to church on Sunday every Sunday. I don't want to be required to go to these small groups and these times of fellowship. And I get it. They are time-consuming, but, but it, it's needed. You know, I realize that the majority, 80%, of American evangelicals think that you can be a Christian and not go to church. Now, people often ask me, are you saying to me, I love that, I always know, boy, they're coming like with open hands. Are you saying to me that I have to go to church to be a Christian? And I'd say, no, not necessarily, not necessarily. I said, um, so I try to draw an analogy with marriage, and some of you have heard this before, but you know, I'm married to Carol, have been for 32 years, and um, if I don't go home, I'm still married to her, but we really have a lousy marriage. If I'm not intersecting and loving and living with her, then our marriage really suffers for it. I'm technically married, you know, and so I'm just trying to draw an analogy to help you see the relationship that, that, that to have... Be devoted to fellowship. It means other things have to be put to the side so as to create room in your schedule where you can encourage one another. Now, I, I, so, so who have you met with in the past 30 days where you've encouraged them? Or who have you been admonished by? And if nothing is coming to your mind right now, then this is a point of growth for you. Don't be condemned. Hopefully you will see it as a means of instruction. On, oh, okay, i, I got to work on that. You know, by way of personal testimony, you have been, as a church, amazingly gracious to us as our, as our family has gone through some struggle. I mean, you, most of you know our granddaughter, uh, Anna Caroline, is leukemia, and uh, Katie and Brandon, Katie's our daughter, um, are the parents, and uh, it, she's had a rough go of it. Really rough go of it, and uh, and the parents have as well as obviously we have. Um, but people have been so generous in gifts. People have come to our house each week to pray. People have wept with us. People have called us to ask. We sense a community grieving with us. Uh, we do. I, I mean, I don't know uh, if you're not a Christian. Uh, this type of community is like, uh, I mean, it's like a life preserver in a, in a turbulent sea. It keeps us afloat. You think, well, 
He's the pastor. He Let me tell you, this guy has had some, yeah, some, some highs and some lows. It's been a fight for faith, there's no doubt. But, but the church is right there. This is the beauty of being devoted to fellowship. I don't use the example simply to remind you of the truth. I want you to know how we feel and how you would feel the day that you begin walking through it, because we all have these days ahead. We all do, you know, not just us. So, so that's the second mark of a spirit-filled community. The third mark you see is worship, and you see that when he says, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, what does the breaking of bread mean? I don't know. I think it probably means communion, but I think it's a bigger picture for worship because you see him explain it more in verse 46 when he says, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. I think Luke's saying, hey, here's what the early church did. They got together in the temple courts, which means they haven't broken completely away from seeing the temple as a place to pray and perhaps preach. They're meeting together in corporate worship uh, for the enjoyment of God. But they're also gathering in homes. They're breaking bread. Uh, they're enjoying. You, you see the joy and the gladness that they have. They're happy to be together. Now, where was communion served? I don't know. Uh, but I'm sure that it was served because they're reflecting on that Christ has come in the flesh to die and he's been raised to the right hand of the Father to serve the church. But what I want you to see is that it's a church that actually enjoys God. And they enjoy God together, not some individual experience you have when you go in the middle of the woods and you see a pretty bird on a branch. That may be fine, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about corporate worship. We come together to enjoy God. And I think this is the point. You know, Christianity is not simply this kind of set of propositions or some creedal affirmation. Christianity is about loving God. And it's about knowing this great God of love. You know, last year I read this book called Why on Earth Would Anyone in the First Three Centuries Become a Christian? Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar. Let me give you the title again because I just loved it. Why on earth would anyone in the first three centuries become a Christian? Hey, people were dying. And, and if people weren't dying in the first three centuries of the church, they were being marginalized, they were being pushed to the side, they were suffering at a lot of levels. Why would anyone do it? Now, he's not asking, why did the church grow? That's, that's also a good question. He said, why would the individual facing the opposition that he or she would face why would they do it? And he went through a various number of answers that have been given. Well, they liked the miracle power, but that really wasn't present in the first three centuries in the way that it was in the first 10 or 20 years. Why would they do it? Two reasons. They realized that God loves them. That God is a God of love. We know that because he's given to us a son. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We have a God of love. The God of the Bible is a loving God, a kind God. He is great, but he's also very good. He's very kind and very loving. And they saw that, but they also saw that this good God has given us eternal life. All of us here, you know, the birth of philosophy came because we couldn't figure death out. That's what gave birth to the study of philosophy. What do we do with death? All of us are just walking towards that cliff. We're all going to die. How do we handle it? What do we do? How do we live today knowing that's... And yet God has invited us to be with him forever because of what Christ has done for us. And these two things, this loving God and this gift of eternal life, 
led people to join the church in some of the most turbulent times that the church has ever faced. That's why. This is why we get together now. Uh, They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to worship. They wanted to be together. They loved being together because they experienced God. When you come, do you come to church to experience God or is it simply to be instructed in the scriptures? Doesn't have to be either one. Do, Do you come to God prepared are we ever guilty of being naive, thinking that you can just blow into the church having given no thought to the greatness of God or the brokenness of your soul? Can you come in and maybe just experience God in fullness? Don't you think that it might require a little preparation? Do you prepare? Do you read the worship prep at least to know where we're going, what we'll be singing, what we'll be doing? It's an aid. Many of us, and I remember this you know, you come blowing in, you're going crazy, you sit down, you muscle through the songs, and then you finally have peace in your life. If you don't fall asleep, which I'm thankful, uh, then you're just kind of resting. God is worthy of much more. Worship is not something that you step into like you're going into movie theater and you're going to be kind of watching a film. Worship is engaging. It's you and your mind. You're thinking about the greatness of God. You're recognizing in your life how much you need him. And you're appealing to him and thanking him for all that he is and all that he's done. In fact, a lot can be known about how you worship. Uh, another, Robert Scruton is a, is a philosopher and he, he writes on this idea of worship. Here's what he says. He says, God is defined in the act of worship far more precisely then he is defined by any theology. If you want to know what a people really believe about God, don't spend time reading their theologians. Watch them worship. Listen to what they sing. Listen to what they say. Listen to how they pray. Then you will know what they believe about this God whom they worship. I mean, that, that's a good measurement. It's a good calibration as to the Spirit-led church is excited about God. Not excited in a giddy kind of carnival type of way, but in this deep sense of abiding presence of joy. And you know what God is? Solid. He's a strong tower that you can run to. The fourth characteristic is the idea of prayer. Look at what he says. And they, they devoted themselves to prayers. Now, I don't you know, it's a plural, the prayers. It literally is in, in Greek. Uh, I'm going to talk about this more in two weeks, let's say. Uh, but the idea here is they were devoted to prayer. They did pray together. I, I mean, they, they were committed to it. And not just individual prayers. That's important, too. You have your own times of devotion to God where you're praying. But they're coming together seeking to pray together. Uh, remember back in chapter 1, in verse 8, when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. He says, wait here. You'll be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. And then you see in chapter 1, verse 14, it says they continued steadfastly, or they continued devoted in prayer. Now let me remind you, and then of course in chapter 2, the Spirit came. So Jesus died at Passover. He was with them for 40 days, and then he ascended. That's when he said, you're going to receive the Spirit. And so they began to pray. The Spirit came on Pentecost, which is 50 days or approximately 50 days past Passover. So they were praying diligently for 10 days. 
Ten days they were asking God, send your spirit, send your spirit. And then when the spirit came, he filled them. But notice that they're still praying. They're still praying for one another. They're praying for the spirit. They're praying, God, help me to do what I can't do. Help me to love you in a way that I can't do apart from your spirit. They saw that to be a witness in the community required God's spirit, and so they were hungry for it, like you would be for food after three days of not eating. And so they prayed. This is what we're called to pray for. Not just you're praying for your aunt, pray for your aunt. But we're also praying for the spirit of God to fill us as a church. Do you pray for your leaders? How many people in this congregation have you prayed for in the last week by name? Have you prayed for our joy to be in the gospel? Have you prayed for us as a church that we would find our unity in the gospel? Have you prayed for us as a church that we would love the word and we would love to hear it? Have you prayed for our church to be greater at actually speaking to others about this great testimony of God's grace to us in Christ? We're called to pray. It's really a measure of us to pray diligently for one another. So these are the marks of the Spirit-filled church, the Spirit-led church. The Spirit-led church, it's not speaking in tongues. It's not performing miracles. The Spirit-led church is devoted to learning. It's devoted to community. It's devoted uh, to, uh, to worship. It's devoted to prayer. Those are the marks. Now, let's look at what happened. So look with me back at 47. So these are the ingredients, what comes out in 47. In 47, he says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, notice this for a minute. Here they are. They're praising God in the temple. And what's the fruit from this? Well, two things, I think, in 47. They were um, attractive and they were effective. They were attractive. Think about it. They enjoyed the favor of the people. In other words, the church was not sour and dour like we can often see the church to be. The church was happy. The church was filled with joy. They were receiving bread with gladness of heart, it says. They were excited for what we have in God. You absolutely are protected by God's grace. You are immortal till he's finished with you. There's nothing that man can do to us. Don't fear what man can do. He can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. And God has, we don't need to fear him in the sense that now he's our father. So we can be a happy people. The church here, they're not thundering out condemnations to the culture. They're serving the culture. This church isn't isolated in a holy huddle, separatistic from the world. No, they're inserted in the middle of Jerusalem. And they had a good reputation among the people. This is what the church, they were attractive. Why? Because they were good for society. They were good to their neighbors. You you know, when you think about the early church, uh, the impact it had on culture. So Tim Keller, a preacher in New York, or a retired preacher, uh, spoke uh, to the British Parliament here in the past couple of weeks at a prayer breakfast. And his message was on Jesus saying that we're the salt and we're the light of the world. And his point was that the church is good for society. And when you think about the orphanages that were started, by whom? Christians. Or even uh, hospitals, taking in the sick, Christians. Or even the universities, higher places of higher life, Christian. And then I was hearing that, and I'm also in the middle of a book, uh, Love Thy Body. It's a great book by uh, Nancy Percy. She talks about how 
Uh, children in Greek culture were non-citizens. They were frail, they were vulnerable, and they were weak, and they didn't do anything, except maybe that firstborn son or something. But children were non-citizens. But yet we're so now disposed to care for children. We have rights to protect Why? Because the Bible. It wasn't liberalism, it's the Bible. Women's rights. Oftentimes we think how feminism has advanced the value of women. I would say not so. Women's rights were raised when Paul said, neither male nor female, you're one in Christ. I mean, society has been benefited by Christianity, by the teachings of the scriptures. We want to be attractive to the world. We're not going to jump through hoops to please the world at theirs. We want to be good for society. We want to be benefiting them. You want to be a good neighbor. Do you have a good reputation among your neighbors? If you moved, would your neighbors miss you? Would they miss the influence you have? Are are you working with integrity? Do you speak with kindness? This is the part, you know, the the church is centrifugal, we say. You know, like a fan spins and air blows out. But the the church is also centripetal. Centripetal is like a whirlpool, you know, where everything goes to the middle. That we are to be so attractional that people actually want to be with us. As opposed to the criticism of the church being kind of the bane of our country's existence, I think we've brought much of that on ourselves. But we can be attractional. That doesn't save people, but we're reflective of God to the world. God is beautiful. And as we bear his image, as we're being changed from glory to glory, we should be beautiful too. Kind and generous and long-suffering. The attractional church is the effective church. You see there at the last part, he says, and the Lord added to the number day by day. We don't need smoke and lights. They didn't need evangelistic campaigns. They didn't need relevant preaching. They didn't need contemporary music. The church grew because the Lord added to their number. That should be of confidence for us. I mean, that God has to do it. But notice how he does it. It says that he added day by day. Why is that there? Well, I think he's showing us that it isn't just the revival, let's say, that took place when Peter preached. Day by day seems to indicate that much of the conversion was not happening when they were gathered in a big group, but as they were meeting in their homes. That you, the witnesses of God, he's chosen you to be his witness, that as you meet with people in your home, as you speak with your neighbors, as you speak with your friends, that's where the gospel is laid out and people are converted and then they come join the bigger gathering of the church that you're the ones that actually bring about the great harvest, not simply the call to faith and the call to believe. Yes, we will give a call to believe from the pulpit, but the bulk of conversion comes from the witnesses. So as you go, so goes the church. It's not simply a product of this this pulpit. So when you look at this early picture of the church, you you have the four characteristics that we're a community of learners. Are you learning? Are you devoted to it? How would we know that? That We're a community of fellowshippers. Are we engaging in the lives of one another? And and if so, what does it look like? And and we're a community of worshipers that next week that you'd be coming, I want to taste God. He says, taste and see. Taste God. I want to enjoy him. I do want both my mind to be informed. I want my heart to swell with affections. And then we are to be a people who are praying. That's why we have a corporate prayer 
we can all rally behind it and around it and pray with them. And then the attractive and the effective follow that. So let's take a moment and just ask God for grace that he might uh, fill us with his spirit, that you might repent uh, as needed or thank him for how he has given you grace to walk in a manner that's right and worthy. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.